Welcome to Relentless Truth with John Warren, the podcast that extracts truth from a wide range of topics, revealing who God is, who we are, and how we relate to each other. Now, here's John with this week's powerful and practical insights. Welcome to Relentless Truth. I'm John Warren. It's good to be with you. Please like, share, review, and subscribe to Relentless Truth. You can find us wherever you go to get your podcast places like Apple Music and Spotify. Or you can go to our website, johnwarrenmedia.com. Please don't hesitate to send along a comment or question through the comment tab. And you can also reach me at john at johnwarrenmedia.com. Well, it is Uh, Good to be with you again. This today begins a series of conversations with friends, friends of mine, most of whom are pastors. And today's guest, today's conversation is with Charlie Parrish. I'm going to tell you just a little bit about him. Uh, He is the pastor. I'm going to ask him to tell his story in a moment, but the, the overview is he's the pastor of Foothills Community Church located in a little town called Marble Hill, Georgia. It's just outside the gates of an incredible community that some of you might be familiar with, north of Atlanta called Big Canoe. I know about this community because my wife and I began back at the beginning of the pandemic, interestingly enough, to kind of look for either a second home or or we even considered moving there. And that process, that thought process goes on still today. The pandemic made it kind of interesting and some other priorities have made that challenging. But Charlie's wife's name is Lacey and his children are Andy, Lincoln, Abel, Luke, and Haven. He's a former missionary to the country of Panama. And and this is today just an introductory conversation. There, There is not a pastor who I relate to more closely, but who I've only spent a limited amount of time with. And so we'll talk about that as our conversation goes on. But Charlie, welcome. It is an honor to have you here. Thank you so much. It's my privilege. All right. I want you to tell your story. It's a good story. I'd love it if you'd start with birth and sort of hit the milestones and work your way through your lead pastor role at Foothills Community Church. And I, w- I want to just, just a quick sales pitch. We attended your church, and you may remember this, back when the pandemic was really just getting underway and you were you had gone to two services and you were distancing and everybody was wearing masks. And I, I remember how gracious you were right before service was to begin. I remember how worshipful the service was. And, and I remember your sermon and I remember walking away thinking, wow, that's a church I'd love to be part of. And then before we walked away, we met uh, Chip Doster, who is a, a deacon at your church, I believe. And I, I, I don't know what to call his giftedness, but it, it's something like welcoming and hospitality and, and making people feel good about themselves because we, we left he was most gracious with his time. Again, it was in the beginning of the pandemic. And our experience there prompted me to contact you several times in the interim. And then we we follow each other on social media. One of the weirdest things I'll probably ever say on this podcast is that I've learned more about your your theology, our kinship in the faith, I'll say, through that outlet as well. So I am excited to have you here. You're first on this list by design I hope one day uh, you are our pastor. So it's a blessing to have you here. And I'm wondering if you just take as long as you need to uh, give this uh, Relentless Truth audience an overview of your story. Absolutely. And uh, and I rejoiced at meeting you and Connie as well. It was really neat uh, because just the initial conversation with you, uh, we had so much in common as far as theology and just clicking together when we began to speak. And uh, I really, really enjoyed it. Every time you guys are, are our way, I love uh, love to see you. And yeah, I would be glad to, to share some of my story with you. Uh, I was born in Mobile, Alabama, Roll Tide. So I'm still working on, on John on that one, aren't I? Like, if I'm going to ask the producer to pl- – no, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Rub that I, out. I get it. 
You win all the time. You got to say it. I know. With, That's right. With respect. With respect. But uh, no, born in Alabama, but my parents moved to Atlanta, Georgia when I was uh, very young, probably three years old. Godly family. My parents loved the Lord, raised my, my brother and I uh, to love the Lord, uh, grew up in a very godly church and a, a church that preached the gospel. However, um, I wasn't converted, I would say, until my mid-30s. You know, I heard the gospel. I was one of those children that was on the front row every Sunday, was at every youth camp that they had. I did the typical Southern Baptist thing of, of walking the aisle and saying the prayer at uh, age 13, was baptized, uh, but really had no heart for the Lord, looking back, really had no desire and passion for Him. It was more or less nominal Christianity. And if you would have asked if I was saved, I would have said yes because of you know X, Y, and Z. These things that I've done. Went to college. You, you know, you know. I'm, I'm going to interrupt you just quickly. I did not know that part of your story, and you might have told me that, but that mirrors almost to a word my story. And and it's interesting that you just said. And I don't want to get you off track. I want to hear the rest of the story. But it's interesting that you just said because I thought I was saved because of things I've done. Those things weren't good works. They were compliance, weren't they? With they were. walking down an aisle, signing a card. I bet you were baptized back then. Yeah. Yep. Me too. Yeah. Same with me. And then as an adult, I experienced doubts and fears and wondered, again, thinking of, did I do the right thing? I wondered, had I prayed exactly the right prayer? Was I sincere? Did you go through that as well? Absolutely. I, I said that sinner's prayer probably a dozen times. Me too. Growing up. Yep, and uh, you know, I, I think the the evangelical church and uh, and I'm segueing just a bit here. I'll get back to my story, but we kind of fall into the same trap as Catholicism at times. Yes, you know, we do. That works, and then uh, you know, we may look down upon that and say that's not correct theology, which it's not. But at the same time, as I believe Paul Washer one time, we have the dreaded sinner's prayer. That is the exact same thing. It is declaring ourselves right before God because of something we've done, not due to anything that He has done necessarily in us many times. Uh, and right. it's, it's very scary. It's a very scary thing. So I, I will regularly in my sermons, you know, I think I almost have a vendetta against that kind of mindset because I know how damning it can be. I, I know do it in my least. classes. I, I do exactly the same thing. I don't want to create doubt. I'm sure you don't either as a pastor, but... I do want to be mindful of the fact that walking down an aisle and signing a card and and reciting some words is not what the gospel, what salvation in particular is all about. Absolutely. And and I've been asked before, you know, Pastor, I was saved through praying the prayer. And I'm very clear when I speak with people about this. I am in no way saying that God cannot save through praying or I'm not saying anything wrong with praying. That's a a great thing. And I believe from praying, possibly that even prayer, people have been saved legitimately by Christ. That's right. My problem when my my problem is when we think that that this prayer in and of itself is the means of salvation. And I think that we have heard that packaged in evangelicalism so much that we've really lost the true doctrine of regeneration. That's right. And it goes back to revivalism, you know, that period, I'm sure you've studied it and can recite it, but it goes back to some well-intended people who started probably pitching tents and renting stadiums who really cared for the souls of Americans. And it kind of evolved over time into this another methodology. And I've never heard anybody compare it to Catholicism the way you just did, but I think you're right on the money. It's another works-based salvation. It's a different twist on it, but it is my performance earns me, punches my card to heaven, in essence. Yes. We've lost, I believe, our culture, and in great part, lost sight of the doctrine of regeneration. And more than that, uh, we've lost sight of the supernatural element of salvation, that it is a supernatural thing. That's right. Um, I want to I once heard a theologian, and I cannot think of who it was, but but he said something like this: "The greatest miracle uh, is not, you know, Jesus walking on water or turning water into wine. It's raising a dead man to, to new life." That may have been R.C. Sproul. Uh, that because that. of because of the implications of the fall, exactly. Because we are exactly. far dirtier, far more sinful, far far more separated from God 
morally uh, from a from a justification standpoint than we we like to acknowledge. Amen. Uh, it's a misunderstanding of holiness. I think. I think that we have, you know, that that's another teaching that we've really lost is what is true holiness. What is the holiness of God? Uh, the attributes of God. It, it's just a gem of a study that I believe every pastor, every church. Uh, should do because there's no better way to know who God is rather than, than to study his attributes. Uh, and I think that's that's something that's rarely scratched today to our detriment. Yeah. Is it fair to say, therefore, we have developed in evangelicalism in the church, in the church that, that we would call the Christian church in America, we've developed a low view of God? Absolutely. Absolutely. You, you hit the nail on the head. That, con- that concerns um, it, me every day. I, I want to be sure I don't. I mean, we all like to bring God down to kind of our level. And even I go to a whiteboard in my class and, and I draw a little stick figure of man and I, I draw an arrow putting us above God when we say things like, how could God do blank? And yes. I think that's one of those symptoms of this of this low view of God that we all tend to have because of our fallen nature. Absolutely. Uh, I was speaking with my associate pastor, Garrett Scribina, about this this past week. But, uh, you know, we read in the Bible constantly about the fear of the Lord, the fear of the Lord, all over the Bible, the fear of the Lord. Yet we don't see the fear of the Lord in a big way in evangelicalism today. And I, and I think in big part, like you said, I think that we have our culture, Not I'm not saying everyone, but I'm saying more or less the culture has such a watered down view of who God is that there is no fear. We want a God that looks like us, that's molded like us, that, that thinks like us. And anytime he goes outside of that box, well, then God must be wrong, not me, is the mentality. Yes. Um, and, and it's just, again, to our detriment, it makes you, you wonder, are we truly seeking to know the true God, or do we just want some God of our imagination to make us comfortable? And how about this? We also have a high view of ourselves. It shows up in, just read the book of Romans and read chapters one and two, and you see that this self-reliance, this moralism that we have, this view that I can be good enough or somehow God, I can judge God, he's accountable to me. I don't fear him. And that fear, that word fear, when it's used in the New Testament, you can do this far better than I can. It's a weighty respect. It's not fear of a, a man-eating monster chasing me. It is, yes. it is weighty respect. We lose that naturally in our flesh. It's actually, isn't it the same sin that Adam and Eve committed? Isn't it? Absolutely. I, I mean, I've got you off track with telling your story, but my goodness, this is that you recognize this. Fine. Did you have a pastor in your 30s who, who you or somebody you met with who helped you walk through this? Or how did you, how'd you get through it? You know, it, it was funny. It, it goes back to, uh, I guess, the, the question of my story. But I grew up, like I said, in a, in a Bible-believing, great church, did not necessarily hear expository preaching uh, on a regular basis. And talk, uh, but talk about good, what that means just quickly. Just I, Most everybody understands it, but just in case there's somebody listening who doesn't. Sure, absolutely. When I talk expository preaching, I'm, sp- I'm speaking of uh, verse by verse, walking through a passage of Scripture, or, or really what I would look at it as is walking through complete books of the Bible from start to finish. And, and um, what is the benefit of that? Is it, I mean, I know a bunch of benefits of it, and I, I agree with every word you just said. The benefit to me, I believe, is, is it wraps everything, if, if properly done, it wraps everything in context, doesn't it? It does. Uh, the way I describe it, very quickly, expository preaching. Um, if I could, if I could water it down just to a, an elementary level, uh, I love movies. One of my favorite movies is the Rocky series. Love Sylvester Stallone and Rocky. Why wouldn't uh, it be? A, <laughs> oh yeah, all American movie, huh? Yep. <laughs> but there's a portion in that movie. There's a part in the middle where Rocky is walking down the street, throwing a ball up in the air. He's got his hat kind of cocked to the side and a black jacket, just walking down an alley. And I tell people, if you didn't know anything about that movie and you walked into the middle of that movie and you sat down and, and it's at the part where he's throwing a ball up in the air and catching it with his hat caught to the side, walking down an alley. And then you just said, you know, I really don't like this and walked out. And then someone were to ask you, what was that movie about? Your response would probably be, well, it was about a bum throwing the 
ball in the air walking down the road. I really didn't like it. Well, you didn't see the beginning of the movie and you didn't stay for the end. You merely ripped the middle out and interpret it yourself. And one of the beauties of expository preaching is you're getting the whole context of, of whatever book you're walking through. You're not just ripping a verse out, uh, which, again, is another malady in evangelicalism to, to take a verse out and not know the context of it. Well, that's expository right. And gives we, us full context. We do it all the time, don't we? I mean, we don't, but pastors, authors uh, will even take a phrase. I remember from my childhood that uh, we would— a, a, a similar church, well-intended, and yet the pastor would take a phrase in the older New Testament, sometimes that didn't even apply to the subject, didn't relate to the subject, and preach a whole sermon using all kinds of examples and other scriptures, airlifting them out of context without that context. And And what an expository preacher actually does is he doesn't just show you the whole Rocky movie. He introduces you to the producer and the director and the and the writer, and he talks about where they were and who they were talking to and who, who the original audience that was intended for the movie was. And, and it, I, I like that analogy. It, it does hold up, I think. Exactly. And you really, expository preaching introduces us to who God is instead of, as we were talking about in the beginning, forming God in our own image. And we can do that if we rip a verse out. You can make, you can make a verse mean anything you want to if you, if you read it out of context. Are you kidding um, me? But- I, I can do it this afternoon when I encounter a problem. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. I, I can bring yeah. I can bring God right down to why did you let that? How did that? What purpose could that have in my life? Just because I can't see it. Well, without context, you reduce the Bible down to fortune cookies. Uh, you you turn you turn it into Amen. you know God is uh, Jeremiah twenty nine eleven. You know if I worship God according to this verse out of context, then He wants everything in the world good as far as prosperity. No sickness, no illness. That's the health, wealth, and prosperity theology. And, and that's where they kind of get that from, just taking things out of context. That's why expository preaching is so important. Amen. I, I had Russell Berger on here, who's featured in the uh, American Gospel film. Have you seen that? I have. Great yeah. film, film. Yep. He and his wife, uh, Catherine, have, uh, boy, quite a story worth, worth following up on from, from this audience. If you have a chance, uh, if, you're, if you're right me, I'll tell you how to find it. But my goodness, it's powerful the, uh, that you've just talked about this prosperity gospel. There's a, that is the place where I think when we airlift scripture out of context, we, we naturally go in our flesh. We naturally think, well, God wants to bless me. And so if I do good, if, I, if I'm a giving person, then I get. And so why don't I give to get, not just financially, but with my entire life. And then where they really scare me, and I realize we're way off track and I'm gonna let you get back to your story. But where it really scares me is I'm responsible for growing my faith. And I am to a degree. <laughs> I, I don't want right. to, I don't want to discount that, but I'm responsible to growing my faith and God will bless me materially. If I buckle down and suck it up and live by a checklist and grow my faith and, yes. and a sign of how I'm doing spiritually is my wealth. And that nothing could be further from the truth. If we take scripture in context. Well, here's the danger of that theology. If we teach that, that, you know, if you give to God, he's going to give back to you. Uh, what happens when you give to God and then the diagnosis at the doctor's office is cancer? Or been, been there finance. and done that. Yep. Yeah, exactly. Then you're going to go through a phase of, well, this is what I was taught. If I give to God, he'll give to me. God is not giving to me. Therefore, he must not exist or he must hate me. And, and you yeah, know, the theology right. there. It leads you down the wrong road. It really does. Yeah, it sure does. And it's easy. I really enjoy this critique of that theology. I think that's really important to do, but it's easy for me, I have to say it out loud, to revert to that sin of self-sufficiency or another word for it, as you know, is moralism. It's easy for me to suck it up and think that I've got to, you know, our upbringing sounds very similar. And that upbringing will, from good intended people, well-intended people who, who have good intentions, can lead to a performance-based life. And yeah. that, that is not at all what the biblical model actually is. Or to think that, you know, we are the center of the universe and God's 
sole delight is to give us everything that we want. And we forget to look at people like the disciples and the apostles who died horrible deaths. Most of them uh, were martyred, um, and these were the most faithful of men. These were the examples of men that were following Christ the closest, and if you want to say the word blessed, blessed of Christ, yet they they'd had no prosperity. So it, it yep. that even up to the biblical picture we see. I was told to put my name in place of the the whosoever or the or or the other person's name on the in the good verses that talked about God's blessing in scripture, weren't you? Wow, yes, absolutely. Boy. Yeah. And it, that there it's scary. that works sometimes. <laughs> I mean there there are some places where yes, I need to know this applies to me, but I also need to know and I talked about it in one of the first episodes, and I'm sure I butchered it relative to the way you're explaining this so eloquently. And I'm so thankful that you're going here and putting up with all my questions, because I tried to explain we are not the center of the story. No. God is, particularly Jesus Christ is. If you talk about human history, the cross is finished work, meaning his birth of a virgin, his sinless life, his death on a cruel Roman cross, his resurrection, his being seen by many, his ascension, and his sitting at the right hand of the Father at this moment, making intercession for us, that is the gospel, and that is the center of all of human history, not me, thank God. Beautifully put. Amen. That's that's beautiful. That's that's all I got. So, (laughs) So your story... We're in your 30s, and I interrupted you. You were about to explain kind of what happened. Because for me, I and this isn't about my story, and I keep interrupting, but for me, it was I started waking up, and this, and this is going to sound a little weird, at like 4.30 in the morning. I'm an early riser anyway, like 6 or 6.30 most days. And it's as if God started shaking me and waking me up, and I found R.C. Sproul's teaching. I found... John Piper, John MacArthur, Paul Watt, you know, other people who who are uh, good teachers who've written a lot of material. And I started ordering their books. And I also ordered some others that were a little flimsier and I won't name them. But I, I was a I was quickened. I was desirous of I knew that my childhood conversion experience, I started to question the I didn't start to I questioned it for years, but it really started to culminate. And, and I started to really question the authenticity of what I thought was a conversion experience. And I started to just on my own dive into scripture, but get these other men's teaching to help me. And it was then later I went and met with a local pastor who understood these doctrines. And, and uh, I believe at that point, I I am certain uh, that at least by that point I was saved. That was my true point of regeneration. So tell me about yours and I'm going to stay out of your way and let you tell your story. No, brother, you, you interrupt any time. Mine is very similar to yours. Grew up again in church, did the walk the aisle prayer thing and, and thought I was saved. Went to college and just lived like the devil. Um, had really no love for Christ, had no desire to know him really. I wasn't a bad, bad kid as far as in the moral moral sense in the world's eyes. Now in in Christianity, uh, yeah, according to Christ, yes. But um, right. thought I was a good guy. You know, that's what I kind of, prided myself on. And, uh, you know, years later, met my wife, Lacey, uh, in Sunday school. She had it more together, obviously, than I did. And uh, we we got married. We, you know, had our first child, Andy. And we owned a gym business in Atlanta. And that's what I thought I wanted to do with my life, be in the fitness industry. And, and this is where we were going. And much like you kind of mentioned, uh, I was just thumbing through the internet one day and I stumbled on a sermon and I wasn't a guy that listened to sermons by any means. I don't know why. I can attest it to God's providence probably. I clicked on it that day, but I did. Uh, it was a sermon by Paul Washer and I listened to it. And I, I did not know that. And I've mentioned him three times today. Yeah. Yeah. His, uh, his preaching honestly, uh, was what, the Lord used to save me. And uh, I heard he, he exposited, uh, I believe it was Matthew chapter seven. And probably scared you to I death. Did, it did. And it, it did more than scare me. It, it really almost angered me because it was unlike anything I had ever heard. Uh, it was honestly exposing the fact that I wasn't saved. Yes. Uh, because the things that I thought that I did, uh, it was exposing that somebody that is truly saved Christ has changed their heart, and they have a new love and new passions and desires for Him. And I recognized I didn't have any of that in me. And I went through a a time of a little bit of anger, 
And then it hit me, you know, after some wrestling that I just heard the true gospel. And it, uh, it reflected that I didn't know him. And uh, it brought me to my knees. It really did. And from there, uh, I began passionately seeking uh, to know God. You mentioned a minute ago, uh, it's funny how that works. One sermon by, by these theologians turns into another. I found R.C. Sproul as a result of uh, Paul Washer and John MacArthur and uh, began reading uh, guys like Martin Lloyd-Jones, yep. Leonard Ravenhill, just absorbing these things. And it was expository, again, preaching verse by verse that I was hearing. And I remember commenting to my wife, I said, I've, I've never heard preaching like this. And I've grown up in church, good church, but I never heard preaching like this in my life. And I was absolutely hungry for it. So it changed me. We began to pray. Uh, my wife as well, she saw that she said she didn't believe she knew the Lord. Uh, it was more or less a uh, accept him and, and try to be good kind of thing. But but through listening to sermons and reading the Word of God, she kind of fell into the same category as me. And so we both were brought to a place of kneeling before Christ. We were baptized uh, for the second time in our lives. This time we, we, we meant it in our 30s, walked mm-hmm. in the waters of baptism together. And I'll just kind of uh, ballpark the story from here. But Let uh, me ask you this before you leave this part. I already know what I'm about to say is at some level probably true of you because our stories are so similar. And I know uh, a little bit about, you know, we have a little bit of knowledge about how God works in our lives. Do you find looking back now that you see purpose to some of the things, even some of the bad things that happened to you along the way to get you to, I mean, bad on a, on a human level, uh, adversity, challenges, things not going as, not that your life was a train wreck, but do you see how God used even your spouse, even children, even your responsibilities that sometimes you encountered challenges that God was actually drawing you to himself through your adulthood? Absolutely. It's, it's amazing to look back at the things that I went through before even knowing Christ, even Um, conversations with people who, who may or may not even have been Christians. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And, And steer you and, and God uses through his providence and his sovereignty to, to use all of these elements to mold us into who we are, to be for him, um, Amen. you know, it's like like the Apostle Paul. God used many of the attributes he had of his fallen life to make him the great preacher that he he was. So, yes, absolutely. God molds and, and he uses. And I didn't mention before I was saved, I was in radio for a short time uh, in Destin, Florida. And uh, it was a morning show. It was a, a wild and wacky rock station. And we just did. You've been, all you've been holding things. out on me, man. I, I don't know this part of the story. I want to hear this. Oh, really? Yeah, it was. Uh, we had just gotten married, and I got a job as a radio disc jockey, and we, uh, we, I absolutely loved it. It was a fun job for somebody that's young and, and newly married, and you know, being on the radio was a blast. But, but that being said, I, I enjoyed that element. Um, I enjoyed communicating, and it's it's amazing how God takes the things that we are given, such as communication and, and things we did before, and just kind of shifts that mm. where it's no longer radio, but it's now proclaiming his word uh, in a different way. So he's uh, he's using those vocal cords in a different uh, avenue right now. <laughs> Amen. And and well, uh, you're a modest guy, but I am, I am thankful. I mean, this story is giving me chills because to hear your teaching and preaching the way you try to honor God's word just the way it was written and intended is really a beautiful thing. Those You have the uh, God-given ability to do that, and I know your, your members and attenders of your church understand this at Foothills Community Church, but it truly, there are pastors where, you know, you and I both could probably critique sermons from time to time, but in your case, that gifting is just so clear. Well, thank you so much, brother. I'm, I'm a radio guy, but uh, I still cringe at, at listening to anything I do. I can't go back and oh, listen to my voice. <laughs> I, I can't listen to my stumbling and fumbling on this podcast. I try to from time to time, but oh my goodness, I, I hear you. I'm with you. Well, uh, yeah, but from there, God, uh, after we were regenerated, my wife and I, long story short, we ended up taking about a year to sell our, our gym business in Atlanta. Now, this was where I thought I was going to be. It's where I thought that I was going to make my living. Uh, and I was abandoning that because I was so passionate about the Great Commission and still am. 
but we sold our business. We um, basically sold our home, everything we had, and we moved to the country of Panama after doing some praying, talking to people. We had, you know, some connections and uh, went there to, to live and, and be missionaries uh, to the people of the region. I would travel into the jungles with translators uh, to preach the gospel during the day, and uh, we would try to plant churches and raise up the indigenous men and uh, raise them up to pastor these churches. And God just moved tremendously during this time in our lives and did not want to leave. In fact, that's what we wanted to be for, for the rest of our lives. We, we absolutely loved it. And what I loved about it, uh, when we lived in Panama, we didn't really understand the language. Of course, we had to have interpreters, but we, we didn't have television at the house we were in, or we didn't watch it, I should say, because we didn't understand anything. There wasn't a big mall to go to. There wasn't all of these thrills that we have here in the United States. Mm. All I had and all we had was Christ. Everything is stripped away so that you could absolutely focus. It's amazing to see all of the distractions that we have that pull for our attention here. Uh, and we don't even realize it. Yep. Uh, but when I was there, all we had was Christ. All we had was the mission in front of us. All I had was the Word of God and discipling our children. And it was so beautiful. Uh, and it was such a, a shock to come back when, when the Lord drew us back to the United States even though it was a blessing in many ways, when we were drawn back, all of those distractions came crashing in again. Now, what, what, uh, year, what year was that, roughly, that you came this back? This was 2000, 2011. Oh, wow. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, and, uh, smartphones, and boy, I'm just thinking of all the, wow, internet, smartphones, all those things were, I mean, they, we were changing fast, weren't we, culturally at we that were. time? And at that time, I did not, you know, we didn't have social media on our on our phones and all of these things. It was just a, a beautiful time because we were so immersed uh, in the gospel. And and today we we do we fight with these things. But but anyway, back to the story. Uh, God brought us back to the United States after uh, the economy. This was about the time the economy was really waning a lot, and so we did. We had to return because uh, the the funding wasn't there for us to stay on the mission field. But God opened the door. And I'll tell you a a quick story that gives me chills to this day. We were in Panama and knowing that we were going to have to return to the States, I had a business degree, communication degree from the University of Alabama, had no ministry experience outside of of doing the mission in Panama. And I prayed. um, I said, Lord, I said, you know, I, I want to serve you with my life. You have captured my heart. But I have a, a degree that's not in ministry. Uh, I don't have any experience. And I, furthermore, I don't know how I'm going to get my family home uh, from Panama mm. because we were, we were a long way away. And the very next day, uh, I had a call that I received in Panama from a pastor who had just found my resume on a site, a pastor in Avon Park, Florida, named John Beck. And he called and he said, uh, we want you to, be, to interview you to be, to be our associate pastor here. That opened a door, and it ended up happening. I, I got the job, and uh, that's another story as well. But Pastor John was a great influence mentor in my life, and we came home, had a job, was in the ministry, and things just took off from there. Unbelievable. Mm-hmm. Wow. How did you get to—I don't want you to leave anything out, but tell me, I've got a couple of quick questions. How many sure. children had your family had when you were in Panama? <laughs> People thought we were crazy uh, when we left. We had uh, four young boys. I believe Andy, our oldest, was uh, probably five at oh, the time. Oh, my goodness. Lincoln was the second. He was, uh, I'm going to get this wrong, and my wife's going to correct me. I think he was three. And our twin boys, Abel and Luke, were, were just babies at this time. So we had sold everything and packed with backpacks on our backs and strollers and uh you know, babies in our hands, our arms, we, we moved. So Andy so remembers, kind of, Andy's going to remember uh, that experience for the rest of his life. He, he and Lincoln both. Lincoln says he remembers, but we would go to the, wow. the Guami, Guami Indians were, were the, the natives that we were ministering to. And we would go to these Guami villages uh, that were, that were in the jungles. And the, the children there would just play with them. But the most amazing thing to see was how children interact with each other, not knowing the language. They couldn't talk to each other as far as understanding, 
but they did understand each other as far as just playing together and, and being together. And uh, it was amazing to see uh, the interaction. So they do remember. My children do remember. So then how did you get to Foothills? Yeah, Foothills was, uh, we were in Birmingham, Alabama at the time. And I was with a more or less kind of a church plant that was basically just getting started within a few years. And I'm from Georgia. I grew up in Georgia, although I was born in Alabama. I grew up in, in Georgia. And we always said we wanted to get back to to home, where we consider home. Lacey is from uh, Georgia as well. Yep. And we just kind of prayed and, and saw the, the posting from Foothills one day. It just kind of popped up and prayed about it and uh, entered into conversation with them. I, I, I submitted uh, my resume to Foothills and uh, didn't think anything of it. And lo and behold, I got a call and you walked through the process, which we did. Uh, and doors opened up and, um, you know, by God's grace, he moved us here. And uh, just amazing. This church, um, I can honestly say, uh, and this is not a plug, but the people of Foothills, we have said over and over that we have never been in a church where we felt so much love. And more than that, when visitors come to our church, it's amazing to see our people are just so loving and caring. And uh, it's a great thing. I can truly say that the Lord uh, has blessed my wife and I uh, with a wonderful church in Foothills Community Church. I can attest to that as a visitor. And I we make it a practice if we, if we go someplace and, uh, to unwind a little bit for a few days we try to check out a, a, a church in the area. We have a little more of an interest in your area, so I contacted you before we we even went there and visited. But there are churches where, and, and this is an artful thing, I have to say, I'm not the best at our church welcoming uh, new people. This is, this is an intentional cultural issue at a church, but it might be, the experience we had at Foothills Community Church might be the warmest, it's the most unusual combination of theological purity of music that is worshipful, the style of this. I'll never forget, and, and you, you can't possibly remember this Sunday, but I will never forget the pastoral prayer. I, I think it might have been Chip who prayed it that day. I bet. Yeah. And, and oh my goodness, I, I was in tears at the at the end of a pastoral prayer. That I mean, he preached the gospel during his prayer, and it was it was just a beautiful experience. It uh, You had everybody all spread out, and people were very tentative about COVID, we didn't really understand it then, not that we do fully now, but even then, even with masks on, even with distancing, it, there was a warmth, a love there, and it wasn't, I, I, I hate to criticize, but it, but it was not the superficial, obligatory greeting that you sometimes get. Uh, we, I had a lady, I'm thinking of a lady right now, bless her heart, who we visited a church, and she walked up and she looked right at me and she said, this is a different church. She said, are you new here? <laughs> and, and she, she, she wasn't trying to, you know, ostracize us, but, but she was trying to size us up to say, do I need to welcome you or not? You know, have I just missed you all this time? And she had good intentions, but I thought, wow, I feel like, I feel like the fifth wheel now. And, uh, I, I, I'd, I'd love to push a button and vaporize myself, but you don't, you don't have that there. You have people who are gifted and we're all clumsy and, and relationships are challenging and I, I get all that. But you, you have people there at that church who who want to grow in Christ, who walk by faith. And I've gotten to know a couple of them over these two years. And I would just say this, this, this is a commercial. Now, if you are a Floridian and you want to go to a place that is, I, w- I will call it in the mountains, still how far from the Atlanta airport? About an hour, hour's drive? About about an hour. Yep. So from the northern end of the Atlanta uh, metropolitan area, it's just a few minutes drive. So you've got healthcare, you've got all the amenities. My goodness, you can go watch the Braves play. You can do all kinds of good things. But you're also in the woods, in the mountains. You're not in a big city. There's a town, if I remember correctly, called Dawsonville nearby. That's kind of the biggest decent-sized yep. city with amenities. And then there's Jasper, which is also a nice little town. And there are some other Lake Arrowheads not far away. It's just beautiful. But Big Canoe is one of the most fascinating places on earth to vacation. I, I don't know whether uh, I'd want to live right inside that community or not, but it's got two or three, at least two, probably three big lakes. You can rent boats and you get mountain views and cool air. And yet you're not at four or 5,000 feet 
most places. So you don't get the harsh, harsh winters. It's just idyllic in, yeah. in so many respects. People are kind and, and genuine. They come from all over welcoming. It's uh, I sound like I work for the chamber, but it is. And Doug Hosmer is a real estate broker there. And, and there's this guy, you know, well named Bobby Parrish, who, who may or may not be involved <laughs> in that, that whole thing. But, my goodness, it's just, it's a special place. And that church is special. It's not the typical small town church where everybody's comfortable and, and knows each other. There's a, there's a welcoming spirit. I I could go on and on. It's a special place and you're a blessing to them. And I know they're a blessing to you. Well, they are. and, And it's a dangerous thing for a pastor. I've learned this more and more through the years to truly preach the word of God, because when you preach truth, even in many churches, it can be despised because truth is exposing. But how, and again, this is kind of like a plug, I guess, not trying to be, but we are so blessed to be where we are with, with Foothills because uh, I'll tell you something that, that's recently happened that I don't think I've shared with you yet. Foothills was founded as a Southern Baptist church, and they were founded, as most Southern Baptist churches, with deacons leading the church as far as the top of the eschatology chart. Yep. And they, they did a great job, faithful men through the years, uh, always have had faithful men at Foothills. But through preaching and teaching, we began to walk through books like First Timothy uh, when I came, First Timothy 3, where it specifically talks about uh, deacon and elders. And we went through Titus and, and different verses. And we took about, I would say, about a year and a half, two years. And how, I'll just give you an example of how our people are. I was approached by our deacons, and basically they— they posed the question that I was praying they would, why don't we have elders? Mm. And, you know, at a church that's historically not had elders, that's a big change. Yep. Yet our people were just willing to swallow it because the Word of God said it, regardless of tradition. And that's just a, a complete blessing. Well, nobody overcomes status quo bias on their own, usually, apart from God's that's right. leading. That's, that's, a, right. that's a challenging thing to navigate through. Let me ask you awkwardly this. Do, do you have a few more minutes? Do you have some more time? Absolutely. All right. Absolutely. Well, I, I have I have rambled through this and, and used all of our time. I'm going to ask uh, Josh and his folks to let us go for as, as long as it takes here. But I want to ask you, I'm going to dispense with more uh, sales pitch for Foothills Community Church. And, and my fondness of Charlie Parrish goes beyond just the things we've talked about. I am concerned about our country and I'm concerned about the church and for, yeah. for the mention, for the reasons we've mentioned. And I, I say that very humbly because that culture you're describing at your church is one where we all come with humility to the truth. And we have to have a little conversation with ourselves because we do bow up and get angry. Uh, God's truth is has tension in it and it's not something that we embrace even after our regeneration we don't always embrace it the right way it's good to hear that that goes on in your church but talk just for a minute and this is this is a broad topic it's one that concerns me i teach a few classes to some high school students at a christian school on monday and tuesday called circle christian school monday tuesday of every week and so i get to keep in touch kind of with these amazing students and their and their families and I, that probably helps me plug into the culture a little more to know what kinds of things are going on ideologically. And I've come to believe that the big ideas we embrace, and you and I have talked about some of them in this conversation. We talked about the prosperity gospel already. But what what do you think is the state of the church? And this is, this is a broad question. Please don't feel obligated to go on for an hour on it. But what do you think the state of the church is? Where's our country and the average person listening who says, yeah, I, I relate to those two guys and I care about this stuff. And that guy, Charlie, he sounds a lot smarter than John. So tell him what can, from your perspective, the pastoral, with your pastoral gifts, which I don't have, what would you say about the culture and how we ought to address just kind of some of the main issues that we we face in the church? Because I, I think maybe the problem in many respects is the church. Yes. I think right now, honestly, if I was to be totally blunt, the church is anemic in the United States. It's starving for truth right now, and it's not getting the full truth. 
you see things like uh, you did a, a great job in two episodes of Critical Race Theory on your podcast a few weeks ago. A tremendous job. I'd recommend anybody go back and listen. But you have ideologies like this popping up, and, and there's more. There's the prosperity theology that we see in churches and the health, wealth, prosperity theology. And, and you know, it all has stems in postmodernism. And we can chase that rabbit trail. We know what that is. It's yep. uh, the idea that there is no truth out there. Your truth is your truth. My truth is my truth. And, and really, even that word truth bothers a postmodernist because truth isn't achievable, isn't attainable. Exactly. And, you know, the whole thing is a house of cards because uh, to say that there is no absolute truth, well, that's a truth statement. Okay. And we can't and talk to each other if there's no absolute truth. We can't communicate. You, you can't. And again, for someone to pose that truth doesn't exist, well, they've just made a, a true statement according to them. So truth does exist. There is truth. I think the problem in the church goes back to the question of what is truth. And we can see that, that the world is very confused about what truth is. And more frightening than that, the church seems to be confused on what is truth. Indeed. That's why we're, these, these dangerous ideologies come into the church right now today. I believe it's because there's a fear uh, maybe of proclaiming the truth, because, again, the truth will cut. I think there's an, uh, an element of man-pleasing in there. It's a fearful thing, again, to preach the Word of God, but we have the Word of God to fall back on uh, for everything. I think that it's just it's something that's plaguing us right now that we need more men standing firm in the pulpit proclaiming the truth of God's Word and who Christ is, rather than trying to please a crowd, rather than trying to be pragmatic and how they draw people to the church with you know certain types of events or fog machines or entertainment. We've got to get back to the basics of who Christ is, and I don't think you can get there without the Word of God, without saturating yourself in that. And, pretty, and let me say this, putting aside preconceived notions of who we think God is. I'll give you an example. We're walking through, right now, we just began walking through the book of Luke at our church. And at the very beginning, we have uh, opened up by looking at the doctrine of the book of Luke. Uh, and now we're going back this coming week, and we're going to look at the same passage, Luke 1, 5 through 7. We're going to look at the same passage from a narrative standpoint, because you've, you've got to look at every facet of the gospel. I think it's just a, a fault uh, of ours to not look at the gospel through every lens. Mm-hmm. So true. Absolutely true. Now, let me ask you this. You mentioned you hit a good nerve in me when you said more men. That is a doctrine right there. This notion of we, you and I can't tackle complementarianism in, in a podcast, can we? Oh, yeah. <laughs> that, that's, tackle any. That, well, Bring that's, it on. That, that, that's, that's a little rough to cover it well, but... You said more men. Even that notion, even among friends of ours, you and me, is off-putting. And yet, Scripture does teach that the pastoral roles are to be filled. I mean, I I always tell my students it's the most intimidating thing in the world to be a pastor, even to be a teacher, but to be a pastor because the qualifications for the job— and the job description are outlined in Scripture, and that's not true of other positions, other places. Talk about that yeah. just for a minute, if you would. Absolutely. Well, the, the term complementarianism, just in the word itself, uh, has complement. Men and women complement one another. And it, you know, if we're talking about this subject, so many times the feminist or the postmodernist will look at complementarianism uh, specifically that the Lord has called men to preach uh, the Word of God, and women are not to be in the pulpit on Sundays preaching the Word. Uh, they're not to be having authority over men. That's clearly laid out by the Apostle Paul. But it, it's looked at by culture as demeaning or uh, like, a, like, like a bigot uh, mindset, and that's not it at all. We have different gifts. Men and women were created equally by God. Extremely important are both gifts of both men and women. There are things that my wife can do that I can't. You know, she has gifts I don't have, more gifts that I have. And if you don't believe that, go to your local supermarket. In our case, it's called Publix. And watch the amazing management skills. I, I, I don't even mean to demean other skills that women have. They have tremendous intellect and uh, job performance and and all, all kind in all sorts of disciplines but 
that that household administration, when you have as many in your family as you do, you know that household administration is a challenge and they are uniquely uh, gifted in that regard. That's not to say they're limited to that work. It is incredibly valuable work and they are uniquely, I believe, gifted in that regard. When my wife leaves me with our five children, I am calling her cell phone 10 minutes into her being gone asking <laughs> when she... <laughs> I totally get it. But no, that there, there's a beauty in the way God has designed men and women and specifically our roles within his church. Uh, you know, you see the culture today that uh, preaches to women that they need to dress like men. They need to do the same jobs as men. They need to have the same things that men have and, and the same positions. And if you think about it, that's a demeaning message to women because what the world, what the culture is saying to the woman is you need to be a man, not a woman. Right. There's, you're not good enough the way God designed you. There's a beauty in how God has designed both of the sexes, and we can't function without one another. We are complementing one another in the household of God. That's the way he's designed his church to work. And when we start to, to fiddle with, with the design of God, that's when everything falls apart. That's when you get wacky doctrine. That's when you get people that are, that are doing things that they shouldn't be doing in the church. I think that's another thing, and this, this stems from complementarianism, totally connected to it, is that we've forgotten that God has indeed designed his church, his bride, to function in a certain way. It's not up to us form the way the church worships or, or runs or, or God is even approached. He has laid out how he is wanting these things to be taken place. And then you get on, on to the, uh, the, the pragma, pragmatism of church. And, and it goes on and on from there. But yep. uh, you, you see how it's all interconnected. When we lose the sight of God's design, you enter into chaos. Yeah. And every word you just said, and hopefully every word I've said on this topic is not demeaning at all to anyone. In fact, we didn't talk about the family, but these words, as Christ loved the church with respect to a, a man's responsibility in the family, it is he is to love his wife. We are to love our wives as Christ loved the church. That responsibility, the weight of that, that is an impossible, I'm saying this clumsily, but it is an impossible task for us to actually love our wives as Christ loved the church. That sacrifice, first, first of all, we, we don't have his uh, characteristics and his capability, and we are, we are depraved sinners. And yet, that picture is a beautiful, respectful, honoring, gracious, merciful, loving, caring role that if we truly aspire to that role— the women you just described on all of those fronts are respected and valued and cherished and fulfilled and not demeaned and not undervalued and not unappreciated. God's design, I can even say as a, and we do get into trouble. You said that beautifully. We get into trouble if we superimpose our thoughts on God's design. That's where we get into trouble with so many things. His design is perfect. And we are subject to him. He is not subject to our thoughts, even though we're made in his image. And so there's a beauty in this that we, it goes back to so many things where we, we settle for sin. Why would we settle for our perspective on this issue and, and not on so many others? I find it interesting. And this just, I hope it's a, a, a consolation and a comfort and an encouragement uh, to any ladies who, who may be listening, uh, and I hope it shows how beautiful God has created uh, the duties of, of a woman. In, in the book of, uh, you know, Paul is talking to Timothy, and he credits, and I find it so interesting that Paul credits Timothy's salvation pretty much with his mother and his grandmother discipling him. Paul doesn't say, well, I, you know, I, hey, I, I poured the word of God into you, or you heard me preaching. Oh, that's Paul right. credits his mother and grandmother. What greater role, what greater honor is it to be given the duty of, of raising up the next generation? Uh, and that's primarily, it falls upon the woman because honestly, the woman's at home while the man is at work. She is discipling these children. That's not to say that the man is not supposed to disciple his family. He first and foremost is. 
to disciple his wife and his children. But when the man is away at work, she is shepherding, she is showing Christ to them and, and molding them into the men or women they're going to be. That's right. So what great honor. That's just a, a tremendous honor the Lord has bestowed upon women, and it's a, a great uh, duty and, and a responsibility. You make a, an excellent point. I should have credited my grandmother, Lois, who is uh, deceased, but she was instrumental in my life as a young person. You know how when you were telling your story, I was talking about that, that look back that reveals God's hand in your life. I should have named her with R.C. Sproul, John Piper, Paul Washer, John MacArthur, all those people, because she played such a valuable role in my life. And I'm sure many of us can look at mothers and grandmothers and conclude that uh, very similarly to Timothy, that we have been blessed by them. I want I want to. Amen. I want to shift just, I want to do one more thing. If you have just another minute, sure. I want you to comment. And this is, this is another kind of uh, slippery slope here. I hear sometimes from people that we struggle with theology, with doctrine. And we've, we've talked about that a lot here. I, I've even heard people, I'm sure you have, well, I, I don't, I just love Jesus. I don't do doctrine. Can, can you just comment, close us out with this? What is doctrine and theology, and why, why is that? You preach the word, you live in this lane, and you preach the gospel every time you are in that pulpit at that church, and you care about doctrine and theology, and, and many people do, but what do you say to someone who says, you know, that just that's kind of clumsy and gets in the way, and we disagree, and can't we all hold hands and sing songs and get along? And doctrine and theology just just make it hard to do that. Can't we just love each other? Yeah. People have said before that doctrine divides, and, and I would rightly say it does divide. It separates the sheep from the goat, the weeds from the tear, or wheat <laughs> from the tear. That's well said. It, That's exactly right. And, and, and we we do. We have these this culture that says, just give me Jesus. Forget about the doctrine. Forget about the theology stuff. Well, you can't know Jesus without knowing the doctrine of Jesus, because uh, my question back to that person who says, just give me Jesus, which Jesus would you like? Would you like the Mormon Jesus? Would you like the, the Jehovah's Witness Jesus? Without doctrine, you are just a flag waving in the wind to be blown to whichever doctrine uh, the wind may be blowing to. Uh, it's necessary that we know Christ. And I think, again, you know, you opened up with the question about the problem of of evangelicalism and and why we, we seem to be wavering, it's because of a lack of doctrine. I think that, you know, there are many people that preach Bible stories, which I'm not knocking Bible stories. We absolutely need to know the narratives of the Bible. But I think sometimes we focus so much on the narrative, we forget the doctrine, or maybe think that it's too deep, or we don't want to run people off. And, you know, that's a conundrum in and of itself, because we you know, we teach our children biology and physics and, and mathematics and all of these hard things. But when it comes to the doctrine of Scripture, in order to keep people plugged in, I guess is the word, we tend to negate that because we don't want to go over their heads. Well, you know, sometimes it's necessary to cause our people to think deep specifically when we're talking about who Christ is. Because again, without doctrine, without studying doctrine, without studying theology and by the way, theology, as you know, is just knowing God. Without that, that's right. Uh, you you can't know the true Christ. You'll get a, an offshoot of Christ. I use the example with my congregation many times that if you, if you know my wife Lacey, you've met Lacey before. But Lacey's five three, uh, not not tall. She's petite. She's got dark hair and blue eyes. If someone were to come up to me and they were to say, you, you know, I met your wife Lacey. She's a beautiful woman. Yeah, I was surprised that she's six foot tall, and I love her red hair and green eyes. Well, well, they may have met someone named Lacey, but it's not my Lacey. And in the same way, without doctrine, people may have met or say they know someone named Jesus, mm. but it's not the biblical Jesus. And don't you find, and, and this is, this is a, a, a little bit of a rabbit trail, but don't you find that we're kind of all... Uh, I, I was at least, and still am to a degree, a spiritual toddler in that I want to know why. You know, I, I, it is helpful to me, it is assuring to me when a pastor like you explains 
a complicated doctrine or the riches of who God is theology. It is comforting. It inform, it grounds me. It gives me a basis. It helps me understand what walking by faith, this thing that I'm supposed to be doing every day really looks like, because I revert to checklist living if I don't have that depth. Yes. Yes. You know, the more I study the scriptures and I know you're the same way, I see the less I know or less I think I know oh, about my goodness. God. The more I study, the older I get, the more I study, the less I know, and the worse my sin looks to me. Exactly. The it more I'm aware magn- of it. Yep. Right. And and the more I see the riches of who God is, and, and it's like a, a, a well you cannot get to the bottom of. Uh, I can't exhaust the knowledge of God. I can't get to the bottom of it. I can't master it. It just seems to continually grow this void that I need to know more. And I think it was Paul Washer who said it best that we'll never wrap our minds fully around the exhaustive knowledge of God on this side of heaven. And even in heaven, that's why it's heaven, because it's going to be a constant search and unfounding of his glories day by day. And Uh, and if that weren't true, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but if that weren't true, he wouldn't be infinite. He wouldn't be God. That's right. He wouldn't have the characteristics that he has. He wouldn't be who he is. It's not just his characteristics. It's intrinsic in him. That's right. If we could wrap our minds around fully who God is, he wouldn't be God. That's why he's God. I've heard, I believe it was John Piper one time in a sermon said that uh, Scripture is basically God talking to us in baby language. The only way he can, because our minds can't comprehend who he is. That's beautifully said. That's exactly right. I want to do a lightning round one question, and it's it's a selfish one, because with my students this past week, I discussed something that I've discussed, I bet I've discussed it 50 times in class, and I had a particular student, maybe even a group of them, who just lit up at this doctrine that is taught in Romans 4, and I just want you to comment on it. It's really, in short, Paul says in Romans 4 that Abraham was justified by faith and that David was just, and that perspective, you you can talk about that if you want to, but I'd like you to talk about just the, the beauty of scripture and how it's all one story. Like we said earlier with the cross at the center, with the finished work of Christ at the center. And I grew up thinking in that environment that you and I were both apparently in that the old Testament saints were justified by some kind of conformity to these really complicated laws. Can you just talk about that just briefly? That's beautiful, uh, and I think you're exactly right. In the midst of uh, the, the culture that Abraham lived in, where it was sacrificial and the blood of bulls and goats was constantly flowing from the temple, you know, people trying to appease God for their sins by sacrificing over and over, uh, and they could never do that because uh, the blood of bulls and goats cannot do that. It's a beautiful thing to see that Abraham was justified, not by that, not by what was common in the religious culture, but justified by faith in Christ, the coming Christ, the thir- one that thir- had not— Thirteen yet. years before he was circumcised, roughly. Yes, before, before Christ, hundreds of years before Christ had even entered the picture in human form. But you're right. The gospel, the scriptures are connected. The Old Testament, the New Testament, you can't— have, uh, you know, I've heard churches before claim that we're a New Testament church. Well, how are you going to be? That's half a church. You can't be a one Testament church. It's a one story Bible. Uh, And everything is interconnected. The beauty of that, it shows us the providence of God through history, that God is working out all things for his glory in human history. And it's not happenstance. God's not sitting back going reactionary. Well, you know, this happened. I better try this now. Everything has already been ordained by God. Every jot and tittle, every every activity, and we can't wrap our mind around that. You know, it's <laughs> it's something we can't fathom. But that's how big God is. That His story, uh, even in the midst of, of things like uh, Joseph being thrown into the pit, and you know, mm. in Genesis, what He said to His brothers that you meant for evil, God meant for good. Uh, he didn't say that God. God worked through your evil. God made things right, regardless of what you did. Now, Joseph said, God meant this. Mm. If you want to say ordained this to happen, for good. The same in the life of Job. And we can go on and on in the Old Testament. 
but everything points to the New Testament and is fulfilled in Christ. And if you dwell on that long enough, if you study that and think on that, that kind of goes back to, again, what we opened up with, just marveling at who God is. You don't get there when you just blindly read the scriptures devotionally like you would the newspaper. Mm-hmm. But when you make the connection between Old Testament and New Testament, uh, it, it will blow your mind. And that's where the riches of these unfathomable mysteries lie. Well, amen. This has been a treat, Pastor. I I don't even know how to wrap this up. I, I tell you, this is what we've done here is why this podcast exists. I say it so clumsily. Uh, You have those pastoral gifts and can really put a button on these powerful, powerful truths. I want to go, I want to talk about Joseph some now that you mentioned him, and I want to go, I want to talk about David and Goliath and and a bunch of Old Testament stories, and I want to, I want to talk about all that, but we, we, we're out of time, and I can just say this. Thank you. You're so generous with your time. I value our friendship. We hardly ever talk, but I know you. I can throw no-look passes to you in a, in a conversation like this because I know, by God's grace, where you stand. What I didn't know is how similar our stories are. What I find in my classes, it's really funny. I bet you find it in your church. Our stories aren't that unique, are they? They are, nope. they are shared by lots of people. I can hear cars starting in Florida right now, or actually this podcast has a quite a worldwide audience, but those who aren't too far from you should travel on vacation, go to Big Canoe and go to Foothills Church and uh, you'll have some in-migration. You probably have people listening to this as your church going, no, 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 we're good. We, we don't want to be inundated, but there's a beautiful blessing to that ministry. Your ministry is a blessing to so many. I'm thankful that you came on with me. And if folks want to connect with you and they send me uh, an email or go through the, our contact form, I'll put them in touch with you if that's okay. And that, yeah. again, thank you. Well, this has been a joy. Thank you so much, brother. Well, folks, if, if this has been a blessing to you and you'd like to follow up, don't hesitate to contact us. The website is johnwarrenmedia.com. Please like and share and subscribe to the podcast. Charlie, I want to have you on again. This is a rich blessing. I'd, I'd have you on every week if I could. This is, uh, again, thank you. And uh, until next time, we will we'll pursue some conversations with some other pastors and look forward to being with you again soon. Thanks for listening to Relentless Truth with John Warren. Please consider sharing this podcast and subscribe to receive future episodes. Connect with John regarding your comments, questions, and show ideas through johnwarrenmedia.com or at John Warren Media on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. That's all for this episode. Join us next week for another edition of Relentless Truth with John Warren.